This is the name of our series, Chazak, the story of Joshua. Whoa! And that is an appropriate thing for this phrase, right? Because Chazak means what? Be strong, right? And we say Chazak as a greeting in order to remind one another that the Lord has more power in his little pinky finger than all the powers of this world combined. It takes nothing for him. Like an ant, he can squash them, right? Like a purse, I guess. He can lift them up, you know, whatever he wants to do. His pinky finger is more than enough. So Chazak. We're continuing in Joshua. We're going to be in chapter 3 and 4 this morning. And we are approaching one of the most significant moments really in all of Scripture. Uh, It is a massive culmination. And one of the reasons I like doing book series uh, and not just topical sermons, um, but reading all the way through books is, is that that's the way they were intended to be read, right? But also, you notice things in the makeup of the story, in the makeup of the whole, that if you just read a verse a day from various sections of the Bible, you will greatly miss. This story is a massive culmination, and we need to have read before, and we'll need to continue reading after to really get the gravity of it. Let's read together from Joshua chapter 3. It's going to be a long story, which is good. Get your eyes, get your ears, get your hearts ready for the word. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the ark of the covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. See, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now, the Jordan is at flood stage, flood stage, all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge,
the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan. And while the water flowing down to the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. And we'll skip ahead just a second. They end up, the 12 uh, who are chosen go in the middle of the stream and they pick up a large rock and they build an altar representing what the Lord had done in this place. It says, Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. Now the priests who carried the Ark remained standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything the Lord had commanded Joshua was done by the people, just as Moses had directed Joshua. The people hurried over, and as soon as all of them had crossed, the Ark of the Lord and the priests came to the other side while the people watched and the waters behind them came rushing back down. The word of the Lord. Now, we're going to talk about Jericho. This has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about Jericho soon, right? But I just want you to imagine real quick, if you're just a folk, a regular old folk sitting up on the tower of Jericho, right? And you're looking out at the beautiful Jordan River, and you see this large group of people you don't know gathered on the other side, and they start walking across, and then the water stops. What are you thinking? (laughs) What are you thinking? You're probably tripping over yourself is what you're thinking. But that's not what this is about. The book of Joshua has a lot of conquering. We're going to get into it. But it's not a book primarily about conquering, and I hope you understand what I mean. And this story is central to it all. This story is a culmination of almost everything that has happened in the Bible up until this point. Do you believe me? Genesis, right? Given to tend the land for the flourishing of all creation. This is what the Garden of Eden, this is what the land that God gave Adam and Eve was for, for them to populate, for them to multiply, right? Bear fruit, multiply, tend to this land, cultivate it, right? That was the purpose of Genesis. When people sinned, Adam and Eve, namely, they were kicked out of the land, right? And God chose from all the families among the earth a gentleman named Abram. And he said, I'm going to give you a land. You will have lots of children. They will multiply, right? And I will make you a blessing to all the people. In other words, through you, I will give you a land to care for. You will cultivate it and you will be a blessing To all nations, the earth will flourish through you, just like it was intended at the garden. Abraham and his family went down to Egypt. They came back. He had some sons. They stayed there for a while. They were sent back to Egypt. They lost the land again. And the exodus happens. You heard of Moses? Some of us hopefully haven't. Most of us have. Moses was appointed to lead the people out of Egypt to go back to the land, right? That was promised to them. This promised Land And from that land, they would be God's nation, God's treasured possession, God's chosen people so that they could be a light unto the earth, so that they could be salt to the earth. He would bless them so that they could be a blessing to all nations. 
God, from the beginning, intended his people to be a gathered people around him who were in possession of a land, not as owners of it, but as tenants and recipients of it, given to them by God, so that they could care for it, tend to it, and in receiving the promise, be a sign of the promise of God's goodness to the ends of the earth. Amen? What is happening in this story in Joshua? We're going to ask two questions. We're going to ask what, and we're going to ask why. Some other bits of context. I've got a map. Pastor Eric put it up last time, and I wish I had a laser pointer, but I don't. So you can see down on the bottom right, east of the Salt Sea, a town called Shittim. Do you see that? And then just west is Jericho as they move west with those red arrows. Are you tracking? So they are there. Now, these are the people of the Exodus. If we were able to read together this morning, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you get the story of this people. But what is peculiar is that the promise given to the previous generations now is taken by these folk. None of these individuals lived in Egypt. Not a soul of them. All of them were born along the way. Here are people who, children of the promise, yet to receive the promise, have only experienced the desert. That region called the Amorites, thank you, Sihon, is largely desert. They are still in largely desert. And they look across at the promise. There's a river in the way, though. It has been 40 years since the Exodus happened that they've been waiting to arrive here. If we could extend this map out just a little bit, you see way in the bottom, southwest, it says the Wadi of Egypt. Any guesses why it's called the Wadi of Egypt? (laughs) Because basically this flag is Egypt. Right? It takes about two weeks to walk from Egypt to Jerusalem. So they've been wandering for 40 years to inherit this promised land. And then they wait across the river for three more days. And there's a river in the way. And it says it's flood season. And God organizes these people to go across it to take, of course, the promised land. Now, my next question, that's kind of the general what. God is going to have them take the ark, which is, of course, his throne, where his presence dwells inside is the staff of, uh, of Aaron and the tablets of the law. And the priests are going to walk ahead of all the people, and they're going to stand right in the middle of that river. The waters will stop. The people will, get, uh, will pass around them. The ark will stay in after all the people have gone. They'll go up. The what? My question is why? Now, it's born actually from Psalm 114, which we read a couple times. Let's repeat these words from Psalm 114 after me. We don't have to pull it up. It says, uh, when Israel came out of Egypt, Jacob from a people of a foreign tongue, Judah became God's sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled, and the Jordan turned back. The mountains leaped like rams, the hills like lambs. 
Why was it sea that you fled? Repeat this question after me. Why, Jordan, did you turn back? Why, Jordan, did you turn back? Well, of course, because God's really powerful. But I have a different question. Why, God, did you make them cross the Jordan in the first place? And why at high tide, not tide, why at flood season? Why go through the Jordan at all? Think about it. Look at where'd they come from? Egypt? Does it make any sense to pass around the Jordan, around the Dead Sea, and then west from there? No. Do any of you take that route, right? It's like if you're going to Denver and you go to Kansas first. It doesn't make sense, okay? Why wait for 40 years? Didn't God intend for them to have this land way back when? He promised it to Abraham. So 40 years is actually a really short amount of time compared to how long the people have been waiting, is it not? Why wait so long? God, why at flood season? You take us the wrong way, you make us take a super long time, and then you tell us to cross it at the worst possible time of year. I've got a secret for you. The Jordan River is not that impressive, not during flood season. In fact, if you look throughout the scriptures, I think there's 13 times in 2 Samuel alone where David or Saul or other, or sorry, where David and his armies and the people of Israel just cross it. It just says in a single sentence, like it's nothing, and the people cross the Jordan, and the people cross the Jordan. It's not that impressive of a river to wade. Probably comes up to about your waist. I've been in a little bit higher than that, but it's really not that difficult. Flood season, a little harder. Why? Why? And this is our question. Why, God, are you making this harder? Doesn't that seem like what he's doing? It seems like there's a discrepancy. God makes this promise for the people. Why would God make a promise for the people unless he wants them to have it? And yet he's putting obstacles and challenges every step of the way. He's making it take longer. He's making the route longer. He's making the route more difficult. From generations ago, if this is really your plan, why make it so much more complex, God? Any of you asked this question before? Any of you felt this way before? I know, God, I know. You're calling me to this thing. This is the path you've sent me on. This is the promise. I believe your promise. Can it be straightforward, please? <laughs> Why? Hold on to that question. As we look at what God did with the Israelites here at the bank of the Jordan, I hope we come to at least an answer, maybe not a satisfactory one, but at least an answer. I've come up with three things that God does, tells the people to do, that the people are required to do at the Jordan, things that happen at the Jordan, at the edge of the Jordan, at the water's edge of the Jordan, at the edge of the promised land, in sight of the promised land. And the first one is this, and I think if we adopt these as we, under, as, as we, as we find ourselves in situations where the promise of God seems so close and yet so hard to get to, and it seems like God himself is putting obstacles in the way, I hope we can remember this pattern 
of things and hopefully be encouraged. The first is this, wait and follow. It's obvious, but it's the most important thing, at least as a starting point. As we read throughout Joshua, the people will sometimes go and attack places they're not supposed to attack. What happens? They get cut down. In this story, they're told by God to go across this Jordan River. What do you think would happen if they didn't wait for him to say that and they just decided that that was a good idea? And yet also, what would happen if they didn't follow? I want us to put this waiting into context so that we don't feel like we are given the short end of the stick in our waiting. These are children who know this promise from parents who've died. These are children who only know this promise from parents who have died. These are people who have waited. These are people who look at this promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey, of green hills, right, and of peaks, and of fresh water in the Sea of Galilee, and the entirety of their life, they've known only the desert. These people have eaten two foods in the entirety of their lives, all of them. Bonus points, can you name them? Manna and quail. These are people who wait. And as much as we don't understand it, God desired for these people to wait. And as we find ourselves in positions where there's something right in front of us that we want so desperately, and even something that is good for us to want, that God himself has said, you should have this. This is not like a covetous sin that these people are experiencing. This is, God has promised this to me. I'd love a cow, (laughs) you know? I'd love a roof of wood instead of tent, you know? Love something better than what I've experienced, and yet God ordains them to wait. And it is good for us to wait. The first step is to wait. And then when you hear the voice of the Lord, to follow. It says, early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites shed out from Shittim and went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. And after three days, just three more days, and the Lord said to Joshua, today, Wait for the today. The second thing, we wait and we follow. The second thing is we consecrate. We wait, and when the Lord says today, we consecrate. And in this context, here's what I want us to think about this meaning. I heard a phrase a long time ago that I believe to be true. It's basically this. Every time you make a commitment to anything, you need to make it at least twice. Have you heard this phrase before? The first time you say, I'm going to do that thing, right? 
I'm going to get up in the morning and I am going to bench press. I don't know. I don't do that, obviously. <clears throat> you make the decision. You wake up in the morning. Bing, 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 bing. What do you have to do again? Decide to work out. <laughs> you decided last night. You made the commitment. Are you done making the commitment? No, you've got to make it again. I get down, right? I get under the, under the weights, and they're pretty heavy. And I'm going to call my spotter, and I'm going to say, you know what? That was kind of tough. Because I need to commit again. I need to commit again. In many ways, this is what consecration is. It is saying, Lord, I am recommitting myself to your way again today. Make me pure the way that only you can because I'm choosing to follow you. Why is this especially important for this group of people based on what we've already discussed? Can I give you a secret? The Israelites are not terribly good followers of the Lord. Better than us, probably, but not terribly good. We'll find out in a chapter we're not going to read that's just chapter 5. These children have not been circumcised yet. What's the sign of God's covenant with his people? The people who God brought out of Egypt by his mighty hand, with plagues, with the parting of the Red Sea, with water from the rock, with manna from the heavens, failed in the very next generation to mark them with the sign of God's covenant. Isn't that interesting? This is a people who need to consecrate themselves. At Mount Sinai, the people said, God, you will be our God, and we will be your people. These people need to do it again. And every time after you've been waiting, after you've been waiting, after you've been waiting, and the Lord says, today is the day, consecrate yourself again. Choose whom you will follow and to what end. Because do you know what the next step is? The raging, flooding water. I wish I had a video for you. I should have pulled one up. Uh, there's a word in Hebrew called wadi. Say wadi. And a wadi is a river, but it's kind of not a river because it's dry most of the year. But when flood season comes down, have any of you ever seen a wadi before? We've got a couple over here. Safe? Fun? <laughs> no? <clears throat> It's like a wall of water often. Like any other flood that you see on river that is destructive, they'll come out of nowhere. You will literally hear the sound of them rushing, completely dry ground, maybe a little bit mucky, and then within sometimes 30 seconds to a minute, there's a river five feet deep just crashing through any sort of valley. This is called a wadi. The Jordan is not a wadi uh, in most of the ways people talk about it, but uh, it functions similarly in flood season. How aggressive was this flood season? I don't know. Can it take out a human being? Can it take out a flock of sheep? Can it take out a cattle? Absolutely. We wait. The Lord says, go. We prepare ourselves. We consecrate ourselves. We say, Lord, rid any sin in me. Purify me because I'm about to step into the chaos that you have called me to. The promise of the Lord 
for whatever reason, is through chaotic waters. And it's just the way that it is. When Israel left Egypt, they went through the Red Sea. When the Israelites entered the Promised Land, they went through the Jordan at flood season. When Jesus went to the Galileans, or the the Gerasenes, that is, the Gentiles across the lake, he didn't just walk around on land, but he went over the Sea of Galilee through the storms. When God brought his salvation to us, it was through the cross. There is, after consecration, often a raging sea. In this case, a river flooded by torrential rains. The river is chaos that stands between you and the promise that God has called you to. But the river is also baptism. The river is also simultaneously baptism. Isn't that wild? The Jordan's not actually brought up that much outside of the constant references, but the Jordan is brought up many times in the New Testament almost entirely as the place where people are baptized. And I'm telling you, this is not an accident because God calls us into the depths of chaos, which cannot be more greatly stated than death itself, which is the burial of our bodies and the bringing them up on the other side into the promised land of the kingdom of God and of eternal life. That is baptism. That is the way to the promise. We wait. We follow. We consecrate choosing again to serve and follow the Lord as he purifies us on the way, and we step our feet into the waters of the Jordan. I've got a trick question for you. Who went in first? No one? The priests? And God? Yes and yes. Isn't this fascinating? There's a really intentional point. It says, stay back to all the people. Stay back. 2,000 cubits, stay back. Do not get close because what is going first? But if you're a priest of the Lord, raise your hand if you're a priest in the household of God. All of you should raise your hands if you belong to Christ. We are a priesthood, right? Who goes first? God goes first. What does it look like is happening? Your feet touch the water before it stops. You experienced this before? I'll say it again. God is intentionally telling the people, I am going ahead of you. He cannot say it more clearly. The Ark of the Covenant is the presence of the Lord, and it goes in first. But sometimes if you're a priest, and you all are priests, you're going to have to put your feet down in the water before the river stops moving. Who's in the middle? Amen. (laughs) When you put your feet in the water, if you're a priest of God, 
He, by his power and his power alone, causes the chaos around you not to harm you, right? At least in a meaningful way. And the people gather around, and who is at the very center? The Lord is. The Lord is. Because the Lord went ahead, but he didn't want to run away from you. He wanted to be in the middle of you and create a safe space for you in the midst of this chaos as he prepares the promise for you. Who is last out? The Lord. The Lord is last out. Any of you had examples of a Jordan River in your life? Of a promise that's very close? Of a thing that you know the Lord is calling you to? That it seems like he's put way too many obstacles to be fair in the way of? Some of these are huge things. I mentioned last week in brief and kind of stumbling through it. um, A couple weeks ago, I was supposed to be on a songwriting retreat up in Gunnison. It was supposed to happen in March of 2020. It got postponed all the way till July of 2021. On the way there, the host of that retreat and the two gentlemen in his car rolled just west of Lyman multiple times. Miraculously, they all survived, but each one of them was pretty severely injured. One of them needed spinal fusion on his lumbar and multiple surgeries on his arm. The other ones uh, got the largest uh, metal implant in his forearm that that particular doctor has ever put in somebody because his whole arm was just shattered, right? They lost most of their equipment, some $25,000 worth, right? And we've got a whole bunch of people who are still coming in to Colorado Springs in order to be led in a retreat by these people. And then we find out um, that night that when we send off five more to go to Gunnison to help out with, because there's no food up in Gunnison, because one of those guys in the cars was the chef, they were supposed to go shopping, send five people up, they get a flat tire about 45 minutes south of Colorado Springs, have to go back to the airport to get a new car. By that point, there's not enough time to get to Gunnison because we've been waiting all day trying to learn news from the hospital about the status of these people. At this point, we don't know if they're dead or if they're alive. We just know that one of them has shattered his arm worse than anyone's ever shattered their arm before. And then... They come back, we figure out how to stay the night, we go get some of his stuff from Lyman, we find out from Felicia, one of, the, one of the women on our trip, that she found out that very next morning that her brother back in Atlanta is in the ICU because he needs a new kidney and she's going to go home ASAP because she doesn't know how long he's going to live. We make our way to Gunnison, we hit about three extra hours of road construction and we get there and there's still no food. Why? <laughs> This is easy. This is supposed to be a retreat. God, you ordained this whole thing. You planned it from the beginning. Why is it taking so long? Why are you rerouting us? Sometimes it's huge, significant things, right? Sometimes it's a house in the housing market today that you need to live in, right? Sometimes it's a a marital relationship. Sometimes it's just a friendship relationship. Sometimes they're really small things. Sometimes it's obedience of any kind, right? Sometimes it's just loving your neighbor. It's hard to love your neighbor. Raise your hand if it's easy for you to love your neighbor all the time as best as you can. Yes, we got one. It can be hard to love your neighbor. You got to find the right time, right? They're not very nice to you. They're not actually that fun to be around, right? You make brownies, you bring them over, and they're not home, right? (laughs) God, (laughs) I just want to love my neighbor. Sometimes it's healing, 
Some of us need healing. Some of us know people who need healing. God promises that he will heal us. By his stripes we are healed, he says. I will restore you, give you a new body, right? I am the resurrection and the life, the words by which he raises Lazarus from the dead in this very world, and yet I've got a headache that I can't get rid of. My back has been hurting for years, and no matter how many people lay hands on me with the authority of God, it's not getting better. My name is Paul, and I've got this thorn in my side, and I don't know why it's here. You promised this. Why are you taking me the long way around? Why are you making me go in it through flood season? What? is going on, God? Sometimes it's confession. Sometimes confession of our own sin and of our own brokenness is the rough and rugged and murky and floody waters that we need to step into because that's also going to be our baptism and our healing of sin. And yet confessing our sin can be really hard. Why, God? Do you make it so hard? Eric asked a long time ago, God, why can't you just snap your fingers and make all the sin go away? Why do you have to do it through the death of your son on the cross? Isn't that brutal and that terrifying? I don't know. But I know this. Who went in first? Who stayed in the middle the longest? And who was there last? The promise of God to the people of Israel was about the land of Israel and the multiplication of the people. But my contention is that that land was just a means to the end. What God wanted was a people in a land so they could see who God was like, so that his blessing could spread to all the world. The promise was about land, but it's actually about a life with God. Ahead, with God in the midst, and with God at our rear. The promise is about God. The promise is about God going before you. The promise is about God being in the middle of you. The promise is about God after you. The promise is about God. God wants to shower you with good gifts, but mostly God wants you to be a people. God wants you to be an individual that does not forget him. God wants you to be an individual. God wants us to be a people who belong to him who know in the depths of our beings his power and his love for us. A people who commit ourselves to living his life because living his life is the real blessing for us to know him and for him to know us. The world needs that from us and God needs us to be that people in the world. God does not need us to have delicious cows and long grass in the promised land. Do you get it? If they went the short way, if he just gave it to him, do you know what they would do? And we know this is a fact because they did it anyway. They would forget him. The promise is not about having the blessing. The promise is about knowing who God is and is about having God and belonging to him. So, let's wait for the Lord. And whenever his word shows up, we'll follow him. And as we're waiting, we're being obedient to the previous call because they knew they were supposed to get to this part of the Jordan, so that's where they went. And then they waited. We wait and we follow. Let's consecrate ourselves to him. Let's be a people who belong to him, who choose every single day that this water that's in front of me, I belong to the Lord because I belong to him and he called me into it. I'll step down.
Or you can go your own way. If you want. You could go if you want to put the map back up. You could go the easier way, right? You could go southwest, right along the Great Sea, go right in. It makes sense. It's the easiest. It's the shortest. You can become just like every other generation that has come and gone in this world. Or you can be a people who know God before, God in the midst, and God after. I want you to ask yourself, which step of those three are you waiting at? Which step are you at? Are you waiting for the next word of the Lord? If you are, I encourage you strongly, be obedient as much as is in your capacity in the time, but don't step ahead and feel like you need to go somewhere that the Lord isn't going to take you. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Wait for the Lord, and when you hear his word, follow him. And in your following him, always consecrate yourself. Ask for wisdom of the people, right? Confess your sins. Choose every morning to open your word, to pray, to belong to God in everything that you do. Whenever you open a door to a new room, I had a friend, I've mentioned her before, ask, Lord, what am I here for? What do you want me to do? And live yourself, live your life as one who belongs to the Lord. Or do you need to step in the water? You know exactly what you need to do. You know exactly where you're going. You belong to the Lord, and there's just a river in front of you that you're a little too afraid to get your feet dirty in. Afraid it might sweep you up. Step in. Step into the water. Step into the water and see what mighty thing God does among you today. Where are you? I believe that as Springs Community Church, we're at step two. I think we're at step two. I think the Lord has made very clear his promises to us. We're going to be a kingdom of God people. We're going to be people who take care of our neighborhoods. It's a Kingdom Life Community Meet Week this week. If you're not already a part of a Kingdom Life community, it's largely what we're about as a church. Ask someone, anyone about it if they're like, I don't know what that means. The two of you, get together. Go ask a third person until you figure out what a KLC is about. Become a part of a Kingdom Life community. And let's see what the Lord does, but I think we're in a step of consecration. I think there's still healing that needs to be done among us. I think that there is still confession of sin. I think there is still remnants. We're very close to being able to put our feet all the way into that water of living the kingdom life. I think we need to consecrate ourselves. I think some of us need to get baptized. I think some of us need to be uh, reminded of our baptism. I think some of us need to be baptized and filled with the power of the Spirit. I think Consecration happens constantly, and I think at large it's where we are. And I'm ready with you as soon as the time is right, as soon as we're all ready to go together. I know Pastor Eric is on the same boat to put our feet in the water no matter how raging and how messy they are, and let's see what powerful thing the Lord does among us. Amen? All right. Worship band, you can come up. Let's pray. Um, if you want to be prayed for, if you need to be baptized, come talk to an elder. Um, Let's see what the Lord does. We're going to go in just a few minutes, but I want to pray first, and then we'll just kind of sit in this space. And as much as you can, ask the Lord. Ask yourself, where am I? What am I waiting for? What significant moment am I living in? And let's at the water's edge put our feet in. God, we need you. Lord, there is no promise that isn't you. You yourself are our desire. And so, Lord, would you come into our midst? Would you come um, and, and pave the way ahead of us, Lord. 
God, and would you guard us at the rear so that all of the attacks of the enemy that are constantly battering against us, Lord, would have no sway and would have no success. God, I pray for the hearts in this room who are on the edge of the river that they would be convinced in this moment by your Holy Spirit to jump in, to follow you without fear, to enter into the promised land knowing what wolves await, but knowing that you are much, much mightier. Convict our hearts, Lord. Fill us with love and with joy instead of fear and shame. Through Jesus Christ, amen.